Lolly was in the tent in her sleeping bag. She was bound and gagged. She was lying face down and her throat was slashed. Julie was found with her arms duct taped behind her back, also gagged, also with her throat slashed, stuffed into her sleeping bag and kind of rolled down the bank of a street. I think with very good reason, some behavioral profilers have, have suggested that this was actually the work of a serial killer. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It was a backpacking adventure that would become an unsolved cold case murder, which has haunted Shenandoah National Park in Virginia since 1996 when hikers Lolly Winans and Julie Williams turned up dead in their tent. But now a writer and outdoor expert, Catherine Miles, has made an attempt to solve the case. And she's convinced that the students who were found bound and sexually assaulted were the victims of a serial killer. Today, I'm talking to Miles about the case and why she was drawn to it. She tells me about the bad policing detailed in her new book, Trailed, about the effects of the double murder on outdoor adventurers and about her compelling theory that serial killer Richard Evanitz was actually responsible for the killings. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So, Catherine, I wanted to start by asking you about the Shenandoah Park. What's it like and what do people go there for? Sure. It's a national park that's located about an hour and a half from Washington, D.C. And so it's a park that tends to get a lot of day use from people just because it is accessible. It was founded in the 1930s and, and has really kind of been fraught from a social justice perspective since its founding. There were um, about a thousand Appalachian homesteading families, many of whom incidentally were of Irish descent, who were forcefully evicted from their homes in order order to build this park. And so from, you know, time in memoriam really here in the US, it's it's been a place of some real contention in terms of social justice. Those families were relocated in what were ultimately kind of shanty towns outside of the park mm. so that the park could be formed. Um, they to this day their descendants remain I think very, you know, fundamentally opposed and feel as if they've been they've had quite a lot taken away from them. That said, it's a really lovely park. It runs along the spine of the Shenandoah Mountains. Um, it has one main thoroughfare, which is called Skyline Drive, which runs along it. So for a lot of people, it's a car day trip place. Um, but if you get off of that main road, it's it's really quite a remote wilderness without a lot of infrastructure, which is why it really appeals to backpackers and backcountry campers. A lot of people from Ireland who maybe haven't been to the States don't understand the vastness of these national parks. Um, can you give us a little description or, or maybe, and I was interested to talk to you there before we came on that you're, you're familiar with Ireland. Can you give us an idea of what sort of size this is and what sort of territories there are in, within it? Sure. Well, I live in the state of Maine, which is roughly the same geographic size as all of Ireland. So that puts it in perspective, I think, a little bit. Um, the state, the, the park itself runs through seven different counties, which I think would be a fairly, you know, accurate sort of representation if you think about sort of a long vertical park running through seven counties in, in Ireland. I think that, that would 
would be probably a good kind of configuration. I describe it as, as like a lizard that's kind of this long, spiny thing that kind of runs along the backbone of the mountains proper. Yeah, with a river running through the middle and we have forestry and then you obviously have some open space as well. Do you have wild animals within it? Because, uh, you know, again, we we have certain animals here, but I know there are mountain lions and that kind of thing in parts of the US. Not so much mountain lions. That's really more of a Western um, phenomenon in this park because it's been protected for so long. Um, the wild animals who are there are really quite friendly and fearless. So there are black bears, which are not regularly a threat to humans, deer, um, and then, you know, kind of smaller little critters as well. One of the things that's been a real problem for the park is illegal poaching. You're not allowed to hunt or harvest in any of our national parks. Um, so there has been quite a lot of a problem with people poaching bears, then selling their livers and gallbladders to, for instance, the Asian market. And then we mm-hmm. have a root called um, ginseng, which grows wild there as well, too. So, so prior to this double murder in 1996, that was the predominant crime that was occurring in the park. Right. And that's exactly why we're, we're talking here today on Crime World. We're not uh, just going through the geography of parts of uh, the United States. We are going to focus in on this murder, which has been subject of your work, a lot of research and what has resulted in, a, in your book, Trailed One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. Now, Julie Williams was 24 and Lolly's Winans was 26 when they were backpacking within this region you've been speaking about, this this national park. Um, tell me a little bit about their backgrounds and, you know, what happened to them around that that May time as they went out there for a, for a bit of a break. Sure. Julie grew up in a very tight-knit Catholic community in the upper Midwest. It was a really sort of homespun, homegrown family and community with a lot of camping and, you know, fires and marshmallows in the backyard, that kind of thing. From a very early age, she became very interested in in, um, social activism. She worked as a translator for Spanish-speaking domestic abuse survivors. She had done some missionary work in Central and South America. She discovered a real passion in geology, which took her both to Europe and to Native American tribal lands to do research. Um, She had arrived at a really wonderful outdoor organization called Woods Women in May of 1995 to take a leadership course. Um, She wanted very much to be a a guide. Um, That same spring, Lolly Winans also appeared. She had grown up in a very affluent family here in the U.S., um, was the survivor of, of some really awful childhood abuse. And trying to come to terms with that abuse had really kind of sent her on a little bit of a meandering path. She felt estranged from her parents because of what had happened. So it kind of took her a while to find her calling, but she eventually did. And what she wanted to do was to establish an outdoor wilderness program for other sexual assault survivors. And so that was what had brought her to Woods Women in May of 1995. And she was kind of the yin to to Julie's yang. Julie was um, a little introverted, quiet, 
quiet, thoughtful, contemplative. Lolly was very extroverted. She had a big laugh. She, you know, made friends really easily. And they met, and by all accounts, it was love at first sight. And so they had this very wonderful summer romance, which then developed into a committed relationship that they had pursued long distance for the fall of 95 and the spring of 1996. They had just committed to moving in together and were taking sort of a celebratory vacation backpacking trip in May of 1996. Mm. And obviously what had brought them together, that love of the outdoors, um, unfortunately became, uh, you know, why you ended up researching what happened to them during that time in May 96. They arrived at Shenandoah Park and their plan was to go walking through the forest. They would spend a couple of nights camping, wild camping, I think it's called. I wouldn't be um, a huge fan of it myself, but uh, you just pitch up basically and you're using kind of, you know, nature and you're sleeping out in the open. Um, they they aren't kind of people going along with a big fancy camper van. They literally have their tents on their back and they're going right into the middle of the wilderness as such, meeting other people of like minds and sharing what they have. That's right. That's right. And that was really the their first love as individual was being in the wilderness. And I think they both, like a lot of people, felt very safe and very competent in the wilderness, you know, shouldering all of their essential belongings on their back. And so it really was what had brought them together. And I think they were really looking forward to this trip. I should also say that running through the Shenandoah National Park is the Appalachian Trail, which is a 2100 foot, uh, 2100 mile, sorry, footpath that runs from the southernmost part of the U.S. and Georgia up to the northern part of Maine. And um, that's, a, that's a footpath that, that thousands of people complete every year as, a, as what we call a through hike, where they begin either in Maine or Georgia and walk the whole 2,100 miles. So spending some time on that trail was also really appealing to them as well. And they would have met some very like-minded people while they were there. So yeah, that trail is sort of like one of these, uh, almost like the Camino type of a, a walk that, that, that people do maybe once in a lifetime. Um, others will come back to it. Is it busy or is that a stupid question? Like is the area, because it's a sort of a, a recognised trail, would you be wandering along and meeting people constantly or is it exactly the opposite? Are you unlikely to see anybody because of the vastness of it? No, that's a great question and it's a great analogy. It is very much like that trail. Um, back in 1996, you could have walked probably for days without seeing another person. But um, the American writer Bill Bryson had written a book um, a few years afterwards, and then Cheryl Strayed had written a book called Wild, which was about her um, completion of a similar trail out west that goes mostly through California and Oregon. And those two books really prompted a real explosion of interest in the trail. And so were you to hike it today, it would be a very different experience. It really is almost kind of like a party or a festival atmosphere on entire stretches of the trail. So what was once a very kind of isolating, by choice, experience has become a very sort of... Um, um, communal kind of social experience for people on the trail. Has it become more, more commercialized now than it was back then? Would there be places that you could stop? And, you know, is there anything for maybe the likes of me who wouldn't be particularly into the outdoors would prefer a hotel room now to a, um, you know, a, a camping a, a night in the in the in the wilds? But is there anything like that along the way or is it still for for the great outdoors 
Yeah, and that's one place where it's really different than the Camino trails. Yeah, you would definitely be camping and sleeping on the ground were you to complete it. Mm. So going back to Julie and Lolly's, so they're there in May. What's the weather like? Is it is it a a, a nice weekend? And what, can you trace the kind of the last 48 hours, shall we say? What are the last sightings of them? What happens to them? Right, right. And um, because both of them were very avid journal writers and Lolly was also very fond of photography, we do have quite a lot of information about the time that they spent there. We know that they came to the park on May 19th of 1996, which I think was a Sunday. Um, And when they arrived, it was really quite hot. Uh, Virginia was experiencing a really radical heat wave, and that was their experience for the first few days. That that heat broke by way of a fairly significant um, rainstorm event halfway through the week. They both um, really were just, you know, coming off of these very busy years. And so they were taking it very easy. You know, a typical hiker and certainly someone like Lolly and Julie might complete 20 miles a day without you know, thinking too much about it. They were really just doing a few miles a day so that they could stop and, you know, take dips in ponds or streams. You know, they might, you know, have like a long leisurely lunch or summit a mountain. So it was really pretty easy going. What happens after May 24th of that month becomes very contentious. And that's part of why I wanted to write the book. Um, the, the FBI, which is, is half of the law enforcement agency here in the United States responsible for investigating violent crimes, the FBI um, determined by way of the medical examiner of the state of Virginia that the women were murdered on May 28th. So for for quite a while, for at least you know several years, everything about the investigation was based on this notion that the actual murder occurred on May 28th. As I parse out in the book, um, once they had a suspect in custody, the National Park Service walked that date back to May 24th or May 25th. So, so one of the things I really wanted to explore in this book is why it is that we originally believed that the women died on May 28th, and then all of a sudden it became the case that they were murdered four days earlier, which if, you know, you've watched any kind of sort of forensic TV show or movie, you know there's a huge difference in terms of how a body's going to appear if it's been lying in the elements for, for four days. So so that was part of the contention and part of what I really wanted to explore in the book. So before we get to the, um, you know, the complications of that, Catherine, what, how were they found, first of all, and how we've gone from the two women being out there in the open very comfortable with the outdoors, very capable campers and hill walkers and, and uh, wild, you know, wild campers, basically. But we've gone from them having this lovely break from their ordinary weeks, getting together, you know, walking along the river, stopping off to have lunches and all of a sudden they're found. One of them, I think, in the tent and another nearer the river. Right, right. And again, there are some real questions here. The first question is, they were found on a very remote trail that a decade earlier had been a popular place for families to go horseback riding. So they would go to the stable at a nearby resort and a leader on a horse would take them on these trail rides down this trail. Um, But that had stopped 10 years earlier. So this trail was all but completely disused to the point that it wasn't even on quite a few maps of, of the 
park. So, so the first question is how it is that they found their way to this, this very sort of remote, unfamiliar, unused trail. Um, the site that they set up for themselves was off the trail and was all but hidden. So the first question is how is it that a very sophisticated double murderer could find these women in this hidden campsite? Um, then the other problem that you have is because this campsite is so remote, because this is 1996 and most people don't carry cell phones at the time, it took quite a few days before their family and friends realized that they were actually missing. And then it was several more days before the park rangers were able to mount a proper search and eventually find the women's bodies. Of course, and I think you find that in a lot of, um, you know, pre-mobile, I suppose, murders, that there is that problem Obviously, it's better to secure the crime scene as as near to the murder as possible from a forensic point of view. Um, But also then you can trace back because it's also tracing back that's important to work out when they were last seen, who they were with, etc. You talk about this disused trail. Do your questions surround how they found it or how a random killer found them are you know, would you have questions in your mind? Were they perhaps brought there? Uh, would they be familiar enough with Shenandoah to have had an old map to know of this, the existence of this um, more isolated off the beaten track trail? Or do you feel there was some sort of fear around maybe that they, they, they found that because they were fearful of something? I think those are all possibilities. Um Eventually, in the investigation, the rangers would say that they believed that the last person to cite the women was the girlfriend of another ranger and that she had picked them up in their car, in her car, and driven them to a parking lot not far. So could it be that someone like that girlfriend had suggested the trail? I think that's certainly possible. Could it be that these two very experienced wilderness leaders had looked at enough um, topographical maps to figure out, oh, well, this will be a wonderful hidden spot where no one will find us. Unfortunately, I don't think we'll ever know the answer to that, nor will we know how it is that the murderer happened to know they were there as well. Because that's really the case. So the um, which one of the girls was found in the tent? And, and just if you can describe what had happened to them. Sure. So uh, Julie was set to move out of her apartment um, at the end of May 1996. And when she failed to return, her roommate called her father father quite upset because all of her belongings were still in the apartment and they were supposed to have vacated it. And so it was her father who alerted authorities and there was a multi-day search when, um, two rangers eventually found the women um, quite late on that Saturday, June 1st. What they discovered Mm. was that Lolly was in the tent in her sleeping bag. She was bound and gagged. Both her feet were bound and her arms were duct taped behind her back. Um, She was gagged. She was lying face down and her throat was slashed. Julie was found... um, about, I don't know, say maybe 30 meters away. Um, Also with her arms duct taped behind her back, also gagged, also with her throat slashed, stuffed into her uh, sleeping bag and kind of rolled down the bank of a stream, which is nearby where they were camping. Later, we would determine that there was reason to believe she had been sexually assaulted. 
The rangers who found this eventually uh, reported it to the, the park authorities. And at the time, they told park authorities they believed it might have been a bear attack, which is obviously ludicrous given the nature of how these women were found. After that, for quite some time, and this becomes, again, part of the controversy that I explore in the book, the park tried to, first of all, they, they completely suppressed information that this crime had occurred for several days. And then when it finally became known to some very intrepid journalists who were doing some digging, the park tried to pass it off as a murder-suicide, which again, given the nature of how the women were found, is beyond ridiculous. And they tried to suppress it. Why? Because of the the tourism? I include a confidential memo that I was able to find in my research in the book. And in the memo, the um, one of the lead... Um, administrators at the park outlines his thinking for it. And I think because it was such a busy time of year, I think because the park had already um, undergone some criticism that they felt like the best thing they could do to keep visitor traffic coming in, to keep that revenue coming in, would be to act like everything was fine. Now, a couple of things in in regard to the crime scene. Um, You mentioned sexual assault that could that be properly established given the length of time it took for them to find the bodies and secondly was that the case in both of the victims was that the motivation and the only motivation was there robbery was there anything else suggested that could have been a motivation for a very brutal terrifying double murder like that We do believe it was a sex crime, Um, and we believe this for several reasons. First, the perpetrator had staged um, a sex toy very prominently displayed um, using, and this is what forensic psychologists refer to again as staging, that a perpetrator will very deliberately display something at the crime scene as a way of sending a message either to investigators or the general public. So there was this sex toy that, um, as far as anyone knows, belonged neither to Lolly nor Julie that was staged there. Um, During the medical examination, they also found lubricants within the genitalia of Julie um, and within her anus, which again was not something that they possessed and was not found among their belongings, so was believed to have been used. Also, in my investigation, um, I also found some suppressed evidence, which included um, an ultraviolet scan of Julie's sleeping pad, which was also found near her body. And it appears that that the perpetrator had used some sadomasochist bonding on her as well, too, based on the imprints that were left by this um, and picked up by this UV scan. Mm. So, look, in the absence of, of uh, you know, further details, we don't know did that occur during daylight or at night. There's no evidence to suggest that there was anything else left behind, anything that could have identified a... Killer, was there anything at all in the area or was there not a a very good crime scene investigation done? Was there cigarette butts or anything like that found? Sure, and I'll I'll answer that in a couple of parts. So uh, because the crime scene was so organized, because this perpetrator took the time to slash pieces of duct tape and then use it to bind the women, because everything was so organized, investigators do believe that this occurred during the daylight hours, that it would have just been too difficult to have this level of precision. So, So that's one thing we do believe. There was DNA evidence found at the crime scene, um, which became very pivotal in the later investigation and the subsequent um, 
failure to convict an individual in this. Um, as you say, one of the things that I've always been interested in is if you descend this trail from the road that I mentioned, the main thoroughfare in the park, the, the campsite is completely invisible. However, if you walk up the trail, there is one part of the trail where you can stand and look and see this, this tent. And at that spot, they did um, collect both a beer can and several um, cigarette butts. Which had no other reason to be there, you know, if you're saying that this trail was so off the beaten track, it wasn't even on the maps. It seems peculiar that items like that would be there for any other reason, um, you know, when they're found at the same time. And like it's a it's a it's a really unusual case, I have to admit, I, I you know, the idea that um, somebody would follow them out to such a remote area like that seems, you know, incredible. And the idea that girls like that and also in a relationship would agree to meet somebody in an area like that seems also incredible. Right. And I think it's really important to remember that this was 1996, right? So, you know, identifying as queer or LGBTQ plus was not something that happened, right? You know, mm. certainly not here in the United States in 1996. And by all accounts, they were very... Um, secretive about their relationship and really just sort of behaved as two casual friends. But knowing the real nature of their relationship, they were also incredibly sort of protective of themselves and on the lookout. So I think you're right that the idea that they would have met someone, um, befriended them or invited them to their, their campsite is highly unlikely. I should also mm. say what I think is really important is that their murders were two of eight murders of women in this very remote area in Virginia over the course of about 16 months. Another young woman, Alicia Showalter Reynolds, had been murdered just outside the park in March of 1996, and her body actually wasn't recovered until about a week or two before Lolly and Julie embarked on this camping trip. So um, I think with very good reason, some behavioral profilers have, have suggested that this was actually the work of a serial killer. All eight. Um, you know, I think it depends on who you ask. I think there's reason certainly to investigate all eight. There's of the eight, there's one woman who's a little bit of an outlier. She was a much older woman. I believe she was in her, her late seventies. She was found inside her home. That's very different than these, all of these other women who were found in varying degrees of being bound and gagged and found in these very remote wilderness areas. So, um, I think certainly seven are worth considering. And I think that you really can make a case for that eighth as well. And Catherine, were each one of those uh, left in these crime scenes that were sort of almost displayed? There was a very sense of organisation from the killer. And, you know, was there that, I mean, both both Julie and, and Lolly's were slashed in the throat, which, um, you know, it, were, were other victims also killed with knife injuries or were there different implements used in those cases? There's a little bit of a range. Um, they were all found bound and in the wilderness. So they all share that in common. Um, one was very badly burned to the point that it was nearly impossible to determine how she had died. What I think is really interesting is duct tape played a very prominent role in how she was bound as well. Um, with the other um, young women, what we know in at least three cases is that they were actually abducted from their homes, 
taken somewhere else, sexually molested, murdered, and then their bodies were dropped in another place. So we do know that about those three. So taken from their homes and brought into this national park? No, outside. they were outside the park, but in a sim- similar wilderness area. Okay, similar kind of geography, basically, they were found. Um, so... You spoke earlier about the FBI being, being, uh, you know, in America, you have the FBI, you have the police, but then in these national parks, you also have the rangers. So um, here in Ireland, obviously, any situation, any serious crime like this, if this body's found, it is purely and only the Garda Síochána who are brought into it. So it's a bit different uh, in the US. In this case, because it was a national park, who policed this and who were the ones that had the sort of the starring role in this horrific crime investigation? Right, right. You know, and had this occurred, as you say, in a part, part that was not the national park, you know, the the state police, which is very much equivalent to the Garda and has, you know, a fairly sophisticated homicide detective unit would have handled this case. But because of the national park system and the way that it falls under um, federal jurisdiction, as you say, any violent crime that occurs in a national park is the joint purview of the FBI and the National Park Service Rangers. And it's a real, it's a very different culture between these two organizations. The FBI, you know, has by and large found a niche for itself investigating both white collar crimes, nonviolent crimes, and then also terrorist crimes. So not homicides necessarily. And the homicides that they do tend to investigate tend to be very high profile urban crimes. The National Park Service Rangers, while they have the same rights and responsibilities of, say, a state police officer, um, they mostly spend their time investigating, you know, poaching in the park, breaking and entering of a vehicle, things like that. So while they know the park and they know these wilderness areas, they don't receive a lot of training about how to investigate a homicide. So not only do you have two sort of fundamentally unprepared organizations, but you have two organizations that don't regularly work together and don't share the same culture. So there was a lot of sort of... um jockeying for position, if you will, amongst these investigators in the initial hours. And I think that costs them some very valuable evidence. And we've touched on the fact that they didn't really want this publicised, what had happened certainly to Julie and to Lollies. I don't know about the other cases, but they weren't directly within the park. Perhaps they didn't want them linked. But did they want to solve it quick? Because often you can find that that is where problems occur in investigations, sometimes when investigating authorities decide they need to solve the crime, they need to identify a suspect, then they make everything else fit. And that's exactly what happened here. Initially, you know, they really were considering all sorts of suspects. The FBI following the Oklahoma City bombing in 1992 had created a brand new sub-branch of the organization known as the Evidence Response Teams. And so what they were doing was slowly populating different FBI branches with these Evidence Response Teams who were responsible for going into collect fingerprints and DNA and any other kind of forensic evidence. Um, This particular evidence response team had literally just been convened. They had not yet investigated a case. This was their first case. And by all accounts, didn't really know what they were doing. So they, I think, wanting to act responsibly and having the best, you know, 
sort of idea at heart, still managed, I think, to destroy some evidence because they were just clumsy and didn't know what they were doing. After about a year went by and no obvious suspect had emerged, um, there was an individual who came on their radar um, for reasons that I can go into. And once that individual emerged, what you see is exactly what you had just described, this incredible confirmation bias where all of a sudden they needed to funnel all of the facts of the case through what they knew to be true regarding this individual. And that's where you see them changing the date of death. That's where you see them really manipulating some evidence, including um, some very sort of um, good eyewitness accounts, going back and invalidating them, in some cases even sort of harassing and intimidating these witnesses. And that's really where this kind of came off the rails. And, And my research was really looking to unpack all of this, which has not really been reported yet. Mm. And this suspect who uh, is a guy called Daryl David Rice, why did he come on their radar? Daryl Rice had grown up not far from Shenandoah National Park. He was a young man who worked as a computer programmer and by his own um, accounts had had really battled with mental illness all of his life um, with bipolar schizophrenia and throughout his life had struggled to find the right medication and the right sort of combination of therapy that would allow him to kind of function in society. Um, in the spring of 1997, um, he had had a particularly bad bout of mental illness. He had lost his job. He was smoking a lot of marijuana. um, And he was spending a lot of his weekends in Shenandoah National Park. His father lived about 15, 20 miles away. One day in July of 1997, he had been up for several days. He was having um, a manic episode. He, you know, hadn't been sleeping and he um, verbally assaulted a female cyclist, a Canadian in the park, um, he threw a soda bottle at her, um, and he, you know, shouted some expletives, and he ran her off the road with his truck. As soon as word of that got back to the rangers, I think they immediately thought to themselves, this must be the guy who killed Lolly and Julie a year earlier. And what we see then is as soon as that happens, everything about this case has to become, can we then prove that all of these details are still relevant when we look at Daryl Rice? But of course, the most vital piece of evidence they had is the DNA that you spoke about. Where was that collected from? And did they... Or were they able to back then in 2002 just check it immediately with rice? Right. At the time, most of the DNA testing was what's called mitochondrial DNA testing, which is not nearly as precise as the DNA testing that we have available now. And what it really does is it looks at somewhere between 600 and 800 positions in a person's DNA. We have four different proteins that that show up. And so um, my DNA might say CDN, CDN, yours might say NNNDC. And that's how we would rule you know, each other in or out as need be. Mm-hmm. So using that kind of technology, um, there were multiple hairs that would found within the duct tape that was used to bind the women. That was tested against rice. And then later, as this case progressed and more um, sophisticated forms of DNA testing became available, there was also male DNA that was found on one of the women's gags that was tested using um, what we call YSTR DNA testing. All of those ruled rice out as a suspect. And that's why in 2004, the case was essentially thrown out. Right, but not really thrown out. So here in the US, we have, and forgive me if it's the same in Ireland, but we have um, a concept in our legal system known as without prejudice. And basically, um, 
to avoid the notion of double jeopardy. You know, if you dismiss a case against someone, you can't bring it back. If, however, mm-hmm. you use this, this legal loophole known as without prejudice, basically what happens is a prosecutor goes to the judge and says, we still believe this is the right person. However, there's been some kind of procedural error or something that hasn't um, allowed us to be assured that we're going to get the conviction that we believe is appropriate here. So we're going to basically um, suspend our case, but we reserve the right to bring it back. And that's that's this notion of without prejudice. That was how the case was dismissed against Rice. So so he does, in fact, live in this situation of, of double jeopardy for a capital murder, not just a capital mm-hmm. murder, but the first federal hate crime in which the indictment used um, execution as, as the means of punishment here in the United States. And we don't have that here in Ireland, but I do think that they have it in... I could be wrong, but I think they have something similar within law, certainly in Spain and some other European countries that you can sort of keep somebody as a suspect, um, you know, in the case, even though they're before the court, you're not bringing them back in. You can just leave them sit there, basically. Um, What happened to Rice and um, did the Innocent Project come in to work with him? They did. So Rice did serve his full prison sentence for harassing the woman on the cyclist. Um, and then as soon as the, the U.S. government had announced that there would be this very profile, this high profile hate crime um, seeking the death penalty, that is when the attorneys who would go on to found this branch of the Innocence Project became involved. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. has really, it's a really sort of sad case. You know, there was so much publicity surrounding this case. Um, and the FBI continues to speak with such certainty that, that Rice was the perpetrator that, that it's become a case where we're really, you know, whenever he tries to move into a town and get a job or run an apartment, everyone says, oh, there's a serial killer here in town. And they kind of run him out of town. And so, um, he's really had no choice, but basically to kind of make himself anonymous and basically live as a homeless person underground where no one will suspect who he really is. So not only has the murders of Julie Williams and Lolly's winnings hung over him, but also these unsolved other uh, seven cases that are sort of linked from similar MOs, but never actually properly investigated or there's been nobody else charged in relation to those cases? Not all of the cases. The FBI did conclude it had enough DNA evidence to close three of these cases. So um, by all logical counts, you cannot associate Rice with those. There were also a series of women who were harassed and um, stalked and potentially kidnapped on the road right outside of Shenandoah National Park. There was a movement to try to pin those on Rice as well, despite the fact that he had very solid and credible alibis for nearly all of them if not all of them. But like women must have been terrified after this double murder to go out and to, to you know, to engage in that kind of outdoor activity. And, um, you know, did it change the culture of the people going there? And was that kind of another reason why they really needed to pin something on a suspect that was locked away and could no longer be seen as being a danger? I think that's exactly right. And because this occurred not only in a national park, but a national park that's such an easy drive outside of our nation's capital, they were under a lot of pressure by senators, representatives, other elected officials to to close this case. One of the things that's really been heartbreaking for me is the number of people who have approached me, either 
having learned about the book or, or my own work in this sort of area. And tell, so, you know, they've come to me and said, you know, listen, I remember this case. I was a young woman when this occurred. You know, I was a young gay person when this occurred. And I have never gone into the wilderness since, or I've never gone camping since. And I think that ripple effect of this crime really is where this, this crime really is a hate crime in the sense that it, it really, I think, radically altered an entire generation of people's experience in the wilderness here in the United States. Now, your own work, because is crime your usual beach? You tell me you've written a book on the Jeannie Johnson, which obviously is a completely different, uh, you know, uh, subject matter. I'm trained as an environmental studies professor, an environmental studies writer. And so what I've always been really interested in is the relationship that we form with the landscape, particularly socially subordinate groups. So the famine was was hugely interested to me because you have this, you know, obvious socially subordinate group, which is Irish people on a landscape that's owned and, and managed by British people who are trying to, you know, use it as sort of their breadbasket. And so looking at the, the triangle trade of the famine and the, the attempt to sort of have this mass export of, of you know, sort of starving Irish layer, labor to British North America was really interesting to me, um, as well as just, you know, the timber industry and the things like that. So, so that plus like this great, great love of Ireland and Irish history History was what brought me to the Jeannie Johnston. What had brought me to this story of Lolly and Julie was, was first and foremost this question of wilderness access. Who gets to feel safe in the wilderness? Who gets to feel like they get to access the wilderness? And this crime was so foundational in terms of answering that question and answering it in a very negative way that that was initially my way into the case. But you sort of, you went in from that academic point of view, but you almost became a detective. And, and, you know, you're, you're untangling essentially a cold case that was badly investigated in the beginning. You're trying to untangle that, but you're trying to actually then establish, well, hang on a second here, who could have actually done this? That's right. That's right. You know, and, and I do have something of a background in science. So that was helpful in the sense that I could, I felt fairly conversant navigating the forensic science and things. But, but the education that I needed to really understand these ideas of human justice, um, exonerations, you know, the way in which criminal law happens here in the United States was definitely something that, that I needed a lot of background in. And I was very fortunate that a lot of very smart people were willing to kind of sit me down and give me lessons. And I did end up partnering with the Innocence Project, which was just an incredible opportunity to understand the really important work that they do. Yeah, and that brought you to untangling the evidence or the bad evidence they had against Rice. But what brought you to your actual suspect, Mark Avanitz? And who was he? Sure. So in 2004, Mark Avanitz had kidnapped a young woman um, and taken her back to his apartment, very brutally sexually assaulted her. And through her own real heroism, she managed to escape while he had fallen asleep and um, raced out of the apartment, had managed to memorize so many details both about him and, and his home that she was able to immediately direct police towards him. This resulted in a, in a multi-state high-speed chase. Um, and as the police sort of bore down upon him, he 
used the opportunity to take his own life and shot himself with a handgun. At that point, given, given the nature of this crime, given the, the real just horror show of, of materials found in his apartment after the police were there, they began to look at him for other crimes. Um, he's the individual who they eventually had enough DNA evidence to close the case of three of these eight murders that I spoke about earlier. And at that time... Because in part, the amount of evidence that they found in his apartment, because during this high-speed chase, he had told his sister that he had committed more of these crimes than he could remember, because there was sort of a developing MO here, for a very brief time, the FBI convened a national task force looking at Mark Ivanitz for multiple other murders of young women across the country, literally from California to Chicago to Florida. For reasons that were never clear to me, that task force was very quickly disbanded. And one of the senior agents sent a very stern memo to its participants saying, under no circumstances will you examine Mark Ivanitz for any other crimes. By that point, there was good reason to believe, if not that Mark Ivanitz was the prime suspect in Lolly and Julie, that he could not be ruled out as a suspect. There are also additional crimes that I'm now looking into that I believe may also have been crimes that Mark Ivanitz committed. And that idea that, um, you know, obviously you don't need to be a trained detective to realise that somebody who's done something as brazen as that, abduct a woman, bring her to his apartment, sexually assault her and then have a little nap because of his confidence and his arrogance, obviously, um, you know, is obviously a far more dangerous character than Rice ever was from what we know of him. So, you know, he did, okay, he he verbally assaulted really the female cyclist as opposed to anything else and was obviously suffering mental health um, problems. But um, it just doesn't make a huge amount of sense that they wouldn't want to investigate Ivanitz and you know, to the nth degree. Firstly, he's dead. Secondly, it'll be a case of going through, you know, his background, going back over a timeline of where he was, what he was doing, what his connections were. Was there any connections of his found with Shenandoah Park? Did they look back over his cars, where they had been, where they were bought, when they were sold? Was there ever any efforts to do that? Or have you any idea why they wouldn't? These are all excellent questions, um, and I answer all of them in the book. Regarding his cars, this is where I think, you know, two things happened here. I think there was just some sloppy but well-meaning detective work, but I think there was also something a little more insidious happening as well, too. So in the category of sloppy but potentially well-meaning detective work, we have, um, there were cameras at the entrances. There are four entrances to Shenandoah National Park. There were cameras there recording the license plates of cars coming in and out. They ran one of Ivanitz's license plates, but they ran a car that Ivanitz purchased in October of 96, which obviously was months after the murder. So, do we know if Ivanitz was in the in the park the month of, of the murder? No, we do not, because they never ran those license plates. And I could never determine what that original license plate was, so I couldn't then run it. Um, but in terms of some of the more insidious things that are happening, one of the really defining moments for me in this investigation that I was able to turn up after I finally was able to access some... Um, restricted and, and secret FBI documents was this mitochondrial DNA test that I mentioned earlier, 600 points, had completely ruled out Daryl Rice as a suspect. There was nothing of his DNA that was in common. When they ran that test against Ivanitz, his DNA matched in all but one place in these hundreds and hundreds of spots. 
FBI policy is that if DNA um, matches in all but two places, that person cannot be excluded as a suspect. Not only that, and this is a little bit of a sort of rabbit hole in terms of of DNA, but um, the one place where his DNA did not match that of the DNA found at the crime scene is where um, it's very common for anyone's DNA not to match. So if I took two of your hairs and I matched them on using this mitochondrial DNA test, there's a 35% chance that your two hairs would be different at this one place. And that's the mm-hmm. only place where Ivanitz's DNA was different. When they received those results, the FBI said, okay, thank you very much. Please rerun the DNA but only run it against Daryl Rice again. And at that point, they never again looked at Ivanitz as a suspect. It's extraordinary. And it, it sounds to me like there's plenty more investigative work that could and should be done on this. Um, I finally want to ask you, Catherine, did you visit the scene? And that can sometimes be quite haunting when you're investigating a case and you get a familiarity with the victims. You know, you become quite... Um, intense about every part of their life. You kind of feel like you get to know them sometimes when you're investigating cases like this. Um, You know, and the scenes can be quite emotional things, places to go. Um, Did you visit it? And what sense did you get of what dreadful things happened there? I did visit it. I, uh, you know, I had really identified with this case for for many, many years. I taught at the small college where Lolly had been a student. Um, I was a contemporary of theirs in terms of age. And like them, I was also a sexual assault survivor who had really kind of found a sense of healing backpacking. So this case had always been very personal for me. And I do try to own that in the book because I think it obviously calls into question my own objectivity. When I originally approached this story, it was as a magazine article. And at the time, I think the FBI thought it was going to be a very sort of pro-FBI piece. So they were very generous about arranging opportunities for me to visit their forensic lab and also to visit the crime scene. So the first time I went, I actually went with an entire cohort of FBI investigators and Park Service investigators. And as, as you say, I mean, I was quite... I was quite apprehensive about it and, you know, slept very little the night before. But but standing there in that spot, what, what really struck me was just how beautiful a place it was. It was really a perfect campsite. It was, you know, by this lovely rushing stream and it was level and it was wonderful and it was hidden. And, and I think for me, I did find some solace in knowing that while obviously this incredibly heinous, violent, terrible thing had, had brought to an end, two really beautiful lives. But but it is also true that their final place was a very beautiful place. And I would like to imagine that they did have some really special and wonderful moments there before they were murdered. Mm. And do you have a theory yourself why or how it happened? I think there's reason to believe that the perpetrator who, um, you know, I think, you know, I think there's very good reason to believe that Mark Ivanitz is the perpetrator. And I think, um, you know, he was known to drive around on these country roads. He was known to frequent parks. They were um, not all that far from this resort that had sort of a pub in it um, and a little sandwich place. And I think there's a reason to assume that perhaps one of the women had gone up to this resort, perhaps to buy some food or, or use the, the restroom or something like that. And I wonder if perhaps he then followed them back down. Sounds like a, you know, as good, as good a theory as any. And if he was um, the serial killer that he's suspected of doing, there's no doubt that he would be watching and waiting for victims and for opportunities. Um, and clearly then 
his his organised crime scene possibly part of his MO. Well, look, it's, it is a fascinating, wild, tragic story, Catherine. Thanks so much for telling us about it today. Your book trailed one woman's quest to solve the Shenandoah murders. There's loads more in that that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a really good read. So thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.